alone, here on a stone. I just don't know where I can go. But getting low, winter is a coming back. And colder than the last. Pity for me, cold it can be. When breezes blow with ice and snow, no wonder then I think I'm in a game. This is Sparky on Ice, the coldest podcast on the internet. Today is October 18th, and I have been on ice for 14 days. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you had a great week. Um, I had a pretty decent week. It was uh, much better than my first week here. Let's put it that way. We uh, finally went green, which means no mask for now. Um, We'll go back to yellow COVID levels um, when we get another plane full of people in, which will be next week sometime. So, like around the 26th is when it's planned. Uh, what green means is, uh, like I said, no mask. The bars can open. People can go exercise again. The gyms are open. We don't have assigned meal time, so we can go eat whenever we want within the regular assigned meal times. Um, no more six foot distancing, so that we can actually touch and be close to people. Not that many of us want to touch and be close to that many people, but you can if you so choose. So it has been much better. Um, the mood on the station improved incredibly. People f- seem to be taking this much better than being stuck in yellow for the entire time. But like I said, we will go back in yellow when we get another plane of people, which means we'll have to go back to mask and back to six foot distancing. The bars will be closed. The store will have limited hours. And it's just frustrating dealing with this crazy COVID crap down here. Uh, I mean, they're taking every single precaution to make sure we don't get killed. Because if we do get it down here, it's going to be bad. It's going to be really, really bad. Anyway, on to uh, better things. Well, looks like I was able to schedule my uh, tracked vehicle training this week, which was good. I was able to take it because we were in green. What that means is now I am certified to run a snowmobile out here a mat track which is basically a truck with um, treads for tires instead of tires they're they're very annoying um they they're slow they're bumpy and they drive very poorly uh, you can't turn them because the literally the tread is a tire or the tire is a rubber tread i mean they're really good on the snow and ice but they suck in town uh snowmobiles nothing big there they're just great for going out on the ice you can drive them um a little faster but you're not supposed to everybody does though and then uh they're just a nice way to get the 10 miles out to the airfields and then uh the other thing i got to learn how to drive was the piston bully now the piston bully is an interesting piece of equipment um if you've ever seen the like the uh snow groomers on ski slopes one of those machines is a a piston bully ours are slightly smaller but the basic concepts are the same it's a box on top of some treads like a tank um, and it drives very much like that it has a steering wheel in the middle which feels more like a a game controller really it's you control your speed by a dial in the middle and the um, rpms are just supposed to stay idle at 1700 rpms um, I think it has a top speed of like 15 at, you know, all the way up. Um, yeah, and when you turn, it's kind of interesting because it will reverse one of the tracks or stop one of the tracks and then you're pulled 
you're pushed the other way by the other track. So you can make a literally turn on a dime, like a 90 degree turn. It's amazing. It's kind of cool. Um, it takes a lot of time to get in and warm up and um, get going. It takes about an hour to get one started and running properly because the the hydraulic systems that run it and all this other stuff, just you got to get them warm. You don't want those things to freeze. But they're great to go on the ice. And one of the reasons we needed that this year is because of the challenges we're going to have with the ice runways. Normally, we have two full working runways in the summer. We have Phoenix, which is our uh, permanent runway, uh, which can land wheeled airplanes. And we run that most of the year. Uh, between November and January, it doesn't get much use because it um, gets warm and it's kind of hard to compact the ice enough to hold up a big plane. So they generally, we call that the air gap where the big planes can't come in. And in normal years, we set up Willie Field, which is Williams Airfield. And it's for skied vehicles. So like the, the uh, Twin Otters. And so there's a company that comes down from Canada and they, they run skied vehicles uh between McMurdo Station, the field camps, and Pole, South Pole. And they're coming down, so that that is working. And normally we'd have the uh, Air National Guard running the LC-130 Hercules. They're not coming on station this year, but they are staging in Christchurch in case we have a medevac because the Basilers and Twin Otters can't make it all the way to Christchurch. So we still have to set up Willie Airstrip. But there will be no Willie Town this year. So it's basically just going to be lights. And they're going to clear out. Or they're not even going to clear out a spot for uh, like a runway type thing. They're just going to land in line with the lights. So that's interesting. I was hoping not to set up the lights this year. But it looks like we're going to. And that's fine. We'll just go out and, and run the wires. And set up all the strobe lights and all the approach lights. Learned how to do all that a couple years ago. So shouldn't be too big a deal. And then uh, after the air gap. When they resume C-17 flights, we should be able to pull it up and put it away again for the winter like we normally do. So that's not the worst thing. It'll be interesting getting out there again. Um, and going green also meant the bars were open, which meant my favorite thing to do here on station was open again. And that was karaoke. Uh, we had our first uh, green summer karaoke this Friday and went really, really well. I brought down some new technology for McMurdo. We went digital this year. Uh, what I did is I loaded up a web server on a Raspberry Pi and hooked that up with a WordPress site with all my songs loaded into a database and it's searchable. And then I have a form filler filler on there. People can fill out the song they request. And up in my booth, all I have to do is refresh the back end on another computer and I get to see all the requests that come in and I don't have to leave the booth because before it was, you know, you would search up, I mean, you would search up on a computer and on an Excel file and then write it down. And then I'd have to go down and grab the paper, fill out nine or 10 names at a time, and then put the paper back out. It was very frustrating, very hard to manage. And even before that, there was a, a book with the um, list and that was even worse. But now we've finally got technology and it worked great. It only froze up on me one time. Uh, but it was really quick to fix. It took me about 30 seconds to go reset the web page and come right back up. We did have a lot of good talent this year. I did sing once. I sang my standard Under the Bridge by Chili Peppers. And it went pretty much as expected. Uh, not well. That will be my one and only performance this summer. So that's all they get. We did have one girl who came up um, and she sang Adele, Rolling in the Deep. 
and she started off really quiet like she didn't know she could sing well so i bumped up her gain a little bit and people started really getting into it and then she really got in there and belted it out that's that's one thing i really like about karaoke is that how huge a confidence builder it can be Um, people who think they're okay at singing and they turn out to be amazing they just feel so much better after Uh, there's this huge smile on their face the crowd's into it that's that's just a great thing i love doing that part that's why i'll keep doing it as long as they'll let me um the other thing that happens is trivia which i run that during the summer too and that's that's fun as well i get to sit there and be the trivia host so i get to make up slides and impart interesting information about things that i like and deal with like i'm doing a halloween karaoke next or halloween trivia next week and that should be fun so it's just bar trivia and there's a a trophy that goes along with it. it's just all sorts of good fun and then also for green they opened up the radio broadcast booth uh, which is another thing i like to do so i started my regular saturday night show uh, saturday night hot mix with dj rob the best van damme music in antarctica and my poster has the picture of van damme dancing from his movie kickboxer kind of cool but even that's changed this year the computer uh, user interface broke during the winter so um, we don't have access to our digital files so i have to do everything on cd and vinyl which takes about an extra 45 minutes per show for me to um, uh, search and find the cds that i want with the music that i want so while it does make it a little more difficult i still had a good time doing it and i think it went really well i was able to end my show right at 10 o'clock so i was quite happy with it and uh yeah i'll keep doing it and the other thing i got going on is my DD game is going to start up this week and i'm looking forward to it everybody got together we rolled up characters um throughout the week everybody's characters ready to go and I, like i said i'm really excited to use it i'm using a new program fantasy grounds unity which I don't think has ever been used down here. So I think that's going to go really well. Everybody who I've showed it to seems to like it. And we'll just see how it goes. I'll let you know. I do not have any questions at this time for me to answer. So if you want me to answer questions, be sure to uh, write me at podcast at sparkyonice.xyz or check out the Twitter or Facebook pages. And right now, I think we're going to go into some history. We left off last time with the Nimrod expedition, which ended right around 1908, if I remember right. So I was just going to continue from there with the fourth French expedition from 1908 to 1910. So Jean-Baptiste Charcot, who led the third French expedition, wanted to go back and Charcot built another ship in 1908 called the Pacwa Pa, which translates into why not. But this one was even stronger and heavier than the Francois, which was his previous ship. And the Pacqua Pa, hope I'm saying that right, was uh, 800 tons and 130 feet long and had a protective iron sheathing coated with zinc on the hull. It was outfitted with a custom-built 550 horsepower engine and it contained three laboratories, an extensive crew quarters, and a hospital room, and a very powerful generator to provide electric lights to the crew. A first for Antarctica, Charcot returned to Antarctica late in 1908, stopping first in Deception Island, but he decided to find an ice-free harbor in which to spend the winter. He brought the ship to nearly to nearby Peterman Island on January 1st, 1909, and named the chosen harbor Port Circumcision. Unfortunately, the Parkok Pa hit a rock and sustained damage, but they repaired the ship as best they could and continued 
doing chart work along the coast even further south than the Adelaide Island. The ship then returned to Port Circumcision to spend the winter. They built four huts connected together with electric wires, another first for Antarctica, set out their meteorological seismographic magnetic equipment and worked through the winter. Everyone survived the winter. And in November 1909, they left Port Circumcision and sailed up to Deception Island, where a diver inspected the ship's hull and found it quite severe. Nonetheless, Charcoal decided to continue with his charting work and sailed far south beyond Adelaide Island to Alexander Island, discovered more of the mainland, including Charcot Island, named for his father, oddly enough, and by the end of January, the ship had reached its limits and they had to return to South America. Charcot had surveyed more than 1,200 miles or 2,000 kilometers of coastline of newly discovered territory. His accurate charts were indispensable to the explorers and whalers following in his wake. His researchers filled a 28-book treatise and included 3,000 photographs. He had tested a lot of new equipment such as electric lamps, anti-snow blinding goggles, and a Didon Pouton motorboat and different types of clothing. Uh, he was known as a very humane man and was one of the first to point out the dangers of har over-harvesting the whales. So that was the fourth. I mean, it wasn't a huge, well-known expedition, but it did a lot of stuff, a lot of first for Antarctica. And now... Um, we're going to move on to the next expedition, uh, the Japanese Expedition 1911 to 1912, otherwise known as the Forgotten Expedition. The Japanese Antarctic Expedition, led by Lieutenant Nobu Shiraz, I think that's said right, I'm probably getting that horribly wrong, was in Antarctica at the same time as Scott and Amundsen were engaged in their attempt, and it seemed doomed to be forgotten from the start, mostly because Scott and Amundsen were already on their way to the pole. But it gets worse. His plan was to reach Antarctica by February 1911, overwinter, then make an attempt to the South Pole the following spring, towards the end of 1911. On 15 September, and he quotes, On 15 September, when the, when the weather will have ended, the party will proceed to the Pole. He aimed to cover 1,400 kilometers in 155 days, arriving back at the ship in late February 1912. However, he didn't reach Wellington in New Zealand till the 8th of February setting him months behind schedule. He was judged to be poorly equipped and badly prepared. Unlike Scott and Admondson, had substantial tried and trusted Nansen sledges, Shiraz had more lightweight sledges made of bamboo, and instead of pemmican as the accepted standard high-energy sledging food, he had rice, dried cuttlefish, preserved beans, and pickles. They were also lacking in basic navigation aids, such as charts of the Antarctic seas, hoping to pick up such things in New Zealand. Their biggest issue in this first season, however, was that they were so late in setting off. They left New Zealand three days after arriving on 11th of February. After struggling through stormy seas, they saw the Antarctic mainland on the 6th of March. They attempted to approach the land, but the sea ice was against them so late in the season. After escaping the possibility of the ice closing on the ship and trapping them for the winter, which would have certainly been fatal, they decided to sail north and try again next year. So they sailed to Sydney Harbor on the 1st of May. By November, he had attained a new complement of sled dogs because most of his had died already and was ready to head south again. This time, there would be no attempt to reach the pole. The crew would focus on sur surveying the land and science. He sailed on the 19th of November, 1911, and by early January, 1912, he had sighted the Antarctic mainland. They passed by the Ross Sea, which Scott had, had set up his base already, and on the 19th of January, the ship sailed past the Bay of Wales, Bay of Wales, where Admondson's ship was moored. 
Though he had declared that he was not trying for the pole and being unequipped to do so, he decided that he would see how far south they could get on shorter sledging trips. Uh, a party of four with dog sleds and supplies of 420 set for 20 days set off from the south on what he called the Dash Patrol. They set off on the 20th of January 1912, battling blizzards, low temperatures, and losing some dogs to price bite in the process. At times, they set out the worst of the weather for several days in their tents. By the 26th, they only had enough supplies for another two days to keep going. After that, he decided it was time to turn back. They had reached the 80-degree south line, and the Japanese flag was raised, and the emperor saluted, and a can containing the names buried at the furthest south point. Then they turned back. Journey took them three more days, and they had covered 250 kilometers. While the dash patrol was gone, the ship dropped off seven men on King Edward VII Peninsula and continued sailing eastward on a surveying trip of its own. The seven split into a group of three and another four and explored in separate directions until they could go no further before returning to the coast and meeting the ship once again. On the 3rd of February, all men were aboard the ship and headed home reaching Tokyo on the 12th of June. He was treated like a hero on his return to Japan. He was soon forgotten, however, largely a result of being able to secure government backing and or support leading to a delay in departure and then becoming eclipsed by Scott and Admonson making it to the pole. And that's going to do it for history this week. Uh, I don't remember what we have next week, but I think we're going to get on to the Scott and Admonson expeditions. And those are going to take several episodes each because there's a whole lot going on there. Anyway, like I said, if you have any questions, let me know and I'll be happy to answer them and until then stay warm